across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The world has been turned on its head again this morning, ladies and gentlemen, as we learned that the police watchdog is now investigating two Metropolitan Police officers who responded to the terrorist attack in Streatham last month as they rushed to the scene of a crazed Islamic terrorist who was stabbing random strangers in the street, having been released early despite having been uh, warned uh, that he was quite dangerous. They managed to crash the car they were in. Now they face months of uncertainty and could lose their jobs as a result of the action by the Independent Office for police conduct, who have accused them both of gross misconduct and dangerous driving. The Police Federation are calling the threat that they could both lose their jobs as an absolute joke, and it surely is that at the very least. It's a very bad joke, whoever thought this one up. We'll hear from the Metropolitan Police Federation Chairman Ken Marsh, who's not happy about this at all. I'm not happy about it either. After all, what sort of message is this sending to anybody who wants to be recruited into the police force, uh, or the police service as it is now called, and what sort of interesting measurements are they going to be handing out to people? People who are in the anti-terrorist squads, the people who we quite rightly uh, have praised to the high heavens for their rapid responses to anything that happens from London Bridge to Streatham uh, and many points in between. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll take you live to Downing Street where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to reveal a four-point plan to deal with the latest on the coronavirus situation as more and more flights are cancelled, shutdowns of business are looking more and more likely and supermarket shelves are getting emptied by crazy people who think it's a great idea to stockpile everything just in case. Uh, also, we'll bring you the latest on the Pretty Patel bullying accusations after it was revealed that someone who once worked for her took an overdose because of how she was spoken to. However, it does turn out that she'd previously taken an overdose as well, so it would seem uh, that the smear campaign against the Home Secretary is still ongoing. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, we're now live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter as well, so you can watch us as well as listening to us. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it beggars belief sometimes when you get the uh, idea that people who run things in this country run them in the way that they do. And one of the things that absolutely staggered me this morning was when I discovered uh, that not only uh, are two police officers under suspension uh, and looking uh, at possibly the wrong end of the unemployment queue, but they've been basically investigated uh, by the uh, Police Conduct Authority, uh, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, I should say, um, because they crashed a car while they were rushing to try and get to uh, a terrorist attack before anybody was killed. And thanks to the speed with which the rapid response units in the police force now operate, we've actually seen um, lots of lives being saved. So we're going to talk to Ken Marsh now, the Metropolitan Police Federation Chairman, because I think he will be as astonished as you all are listening to this this morning, uh, because the, the situation is this. They were rushing on a Sunday afternoon through busy streets in South London because Sudesh Aman uh, had been released from prison. He was so dangerous that he was being followed and trailed by other police officers and he suddenly realised that he was being followed and it seems he then took it upon himself to rush into a shop, if you remember the story, grab a knife and just start stabbing people at random. Ken, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. This is quite remarkable, isn't it? It, it is. In my service, I've been with the police a long time. Um, I, I've not encountered this one um, and I'm really, really frustrated by it. And I'll tell you why. Uh, it's been quite a bit thrown back at us around, well, you're police, you should be uh, investigated. I have no issue with that whatsoever. 
Absolutely, as police officers, we should be transparent, we should be investigated. But gross misconduct? Mm. Come on, let's have a bit of common sense here. Firstly, the two vehicles that were going to the scene, bear in mind, walk that mile with me just for a minute. Radios are going off everywhere. Officers are running from all over London. Mm. This is a major terrorist incident. We don't know it's one person. Could be 10, 15, 20. Further, further... The officer that had the interaction with the vehicle, had you not know that was a bandit vehicle doing that on purpose? Yeah. Right. So the second vehicle carries on because the second vehicle, funny enough, is trained for that sort of thing. Yes. So they leave the scene. Bang, you're in trouble and you're on gross misconduct. Come on. Please. I mean, it really is. As you say, um, presumably these pen pushers, the people that sit behind the desks, don't yeah. know what it's like in that car. They don't understand what it's like to drive at high speed through fairly narrow streets, covered in parked cars, cars coming at you from all sorts of directions, speed bumps all over the place. I mean, it's bad enough when you're not trying to get to a terrorist attack. Yeah. Well, uh, but look, listen, as police officers, if you're, if you're tra- I was trained in blue lights. Yeah. You're trained to all sorts of levels. The training is very intense. It's very pressurised. And quite rightly, it's so that you are competent and have the ability to do what you're doing. So, therefore, when an officer has an accident, that's what we're talking about. Treat it as an accident and say, as the Prime Minister said and as the Home Secretary said, well done for getting there so quickly. Mm. Now, the, the rub on this, Mike, is... If you want my colleagues to drive at 30 miles per hour, obey them and hear everything on the way, well, God forbid what will happen then in terms of death to the public. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the things I have said and, and, and have said repeatedly ever since the first London Bridge attack in Borough Market and the most recent one last November, the speed with which the Metropolitan Police armed response units now get to these events is quite incredible. They're really good at it, you know, because you don't know exactly where they are when it happens, but they seem to be able to get, certainly to the London Bridge attack, uh, they were there within about two three minutes which is amazing absolutely and and you know if we're going to start saying to my colleagues stop think that's very worrying yeah. my colleagues don't think in that sort of situation about what speed they're doing they react they respond they run to danger yes. that's what you want them to do that's what the public want them to do i'll tell you what mike if you saw the amount of emails and letters we received into my office yesterday yeah. from members of public just joe public saying Good on you. This is absolutely disgusting. Yes. It really is quite incredible. But who's behind this um, kind of well, decision to do this? Because I think we should be told, because we've seen, for example, and I know this is none, none of your business and not related at all, but we've seen how some people inside the civil service operate uh, when nobody's keeping an eye on them. Who's responsible for coming up with this stuff? Well, this has to get automatically referred by the Met. Right. So I accept that. I understand that fully. That is policy. So the Met would automatically refer it to the IOPC. Mm. Then they become very faceless. You don't, you don't get names as to who's done this. Right. You just get officers summons to buildings to be served notices. So the, the, there is a lack of transparency around that because I have, a, I have a very good professional standards lead within the Federation, Ollie Cochran, who is just brilliant. And if you have a conversation with him, he would have guided them through and he would have told them, you know, how we can take this forward, how the investigation can be done so yeah. there's transparency, et cetera, et cetera. Because these cops are human beings. Mm. How do they feel now after being patted on the back by the Prime Minister and having to wallow around for the next couple of years waiting for a result on this? Well, that's the other question I was going to have for you, is what is the procedure now? Where are these two guys? I know we can't name them, but that's fair enough. But what is it that happens to them once they've been sort of tapped on the shoulder, as it were? Are they put on restricted duty? Are they, are they suspended? What's going on? 
So they're restricted from driving completely, um, which will have a detrimental effect on the role they can perform because they're specialists in certain areas. So that's two less anti-terror police on the streets? Well, no, I haven't said they're not on the streets. They they could still perform a role. But what's their mindset? Right. Knowing that this is facing them, gross misconduct, you know... (laughs) Put yourself in those shoes. You've got a mortgage, you've got children, etc., etc. You're a human being and you've been stumped with this. Right. I'm uh, not sure you'd want to be carrying guns around the street and, and behaving how they do. Well, it. and putting your life on the line, basically, for an organisation that clearly Absolutely. doesn't care about you. I mean, with, with, with all due respect to the Federation, I'm, talk, I'm talking about the actual Metropolitan Police. And also, um, why does it have to take such a long time? You tell me, Mike, please, hallelujah. We've raised this over and over again so many times. You wouldn't be able to treat a member of public the way we're treated. Yeah. It's just incredible. Mm. They just think they can do whatever they want, take as long as they want. How does it take a year, two years? To do an investigation, yeah. you could investigate this in a fortnight. Well, exactly. I mean, surely you could do it in a week if you had to. I mean, it well, seems yeah. to me to be incredible. I'll give them a fortnight to give them a bit of credence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they've got to take their holiday time in between, of course. Yeah. They? So, I mean, and also, what does this do? Not just to the morale of the two individuals yeah. concerned, but to the rest of the squad, to the rest of the armed response people, because it could be them next. Yeah. Well, we've been in close contact with them, as you would expect, and they're absolutely disgusted by it. It has a knock-on effect. It knocks on to them, because then they start thinking now, the next call that comes out tomorrow afternoon, major incident, you know, are they thinking differently as to how they're going to respond? It has a knock-on to people thinking within other departments to apply for that department. It has a knock-on for new recruits that we're desperately trying to sign up across the country. You know, the ramifications are massive. Yeah. And do you represent these guys, Ken, as as per when they go and appear in front of whatever committee they have to go and appear in front of? We do. I, I don't personally, I'm the chairman, but we have experts who are police officers who are full-time fed reps, etc., who that is their role and they're specialists. But they have legal support as right. well. Um, you know, they have a real good team around them that will support them from beginning to end. Right. And do they have a definition of this gross misconduct? Because surely no. I can't imagine under which circumstance they could find even a reason to accuse them of that. No, it's, it's quite bizarre. And this is what I've been really getting the ump about because, you know, I say it again, no issue with investigation. Mm. But by lumping gross misconduct on it, that's a sackable offence. Yeah. Once you get to that level, that's the highest level you can put on an officer. Right. You know, uh, and that carries all sorts of caveats within it and it gives the remit for removal from employment. Mm. Well, (laughs) it doesn't need to be that. It needs to be a full investigation is taking place. We fully accept that. The officers have been made aware of that. We fully accept that. The outcome. And then if there is a finding that has a detrimental effect on the actions of the officer, then that will be discussed. But to bang this out to them from day one, bang, have a bit of that, Mm. when they've not even done a preliminary investigation. Right. Because we thought in the public, uh, I have to say, that the things, things had turned, taken a bit of a turn for the better uh, now that Boris Johnson yeah. was in charge because we understood that, you know, you, you, your guys have been given the right to shoot to kill uh, if, in fact, it turns out that one of these terrorist scumbags looks as if he's wearing a, a vest of some description, a suicide vest, even if it's fake. And I thought, well, that sounds sensible to me. But do they still investigate people every time they fire a gun as well? Yeah, uh, but this isn't the government. This, the IOPC is, is meant to be independent in what they do. Yes, they still do full investigations of everything, but, but turn around very quickly. Yeah. Because so if you saw the London Bridge, you saw Westminster, those officers have been dealt with, you know, because it, it's been turned around. Yes. 
because the remit has come from the government, that's the way it will be. Well, we need to understand or have some sort of understanding around how we're going to treat our heroes when you want them to run towards horrendous terrorists. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Exactly, and as you say, you don't know if you're in that car, whether it's a bomb you're going to, whether it's a guy with a suicide vest, whether it's a sort of Bataclan situation with five guys with machine guns, you just don't know, do you? Not a clue, not a clue. And, and you know, the, the, the whole thing about this is, and I, I speak to firearms officers a lot, mm. the, the, there is a heightened perception now, you know, and I'm not creating hysteria or ramping it up by saying that. Within armed officers, there is a heightened perception. So that means at any given time, you could be called upon yes. to pull that trigger. Now, just put yourself in that mindset. Mm. You are a human being who has the ability, under lawful order, to take someone's life. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be in that position, and I take my hat off to our colleagues that are. Yes. But we have to afford them some you know, recompense some responsibility to what they're doing and admire them for that rather than jump on them yeah. when you've had several hours to sit down and just mull over things that they're making point one of a second decisions on. Exactly right. And as you said, nobody's objecting to an investigation. No. Nobody's saying you can't look into what happened no. and learn lessons from it. But what you don't want to do, uh, as you say, is put them in a mindset now uh, which is very negative, uh, which is incredibly sort of depressed, no doubt, um, when they've got uh, the opportunity to, or, the, or the possibility of having to take another life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's, that, that's the basis of what we're talking about. Right. The public have, have, have started to really understand what the police are about and what we're doing and what we're trying to do. Because when you're in fear and when you're in danger, you look to the police. Yes. And because we've had numerous terrorist attacks, and unfortunately, I have to say, we will probably have more. Mm. You know, well, well, then it's down to us. We're your line of blue that, that will sort it out. So if you want to start restricting how we're doing that and you want to start jumping all over us before an investigation has even been done, then we've got a problem. Yeah, we absolutely have. Is there anything you can do at this moment to kind of reduce the charge, as it were? Well, we've obviously lobbied very hard over the last 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, we are being listened to. This will be looked at more closely now, I would suggest. Um, I, I mean, I have to say from the off, it's absurd. I don't think anything will come from it at all, because good luck if you're going to find my colleagues guilty of, <laughs> of something out of this, because yeah. I've looked at it, my colleagues have looked at it. No, I can't see that and happening. What, would be, what do you think would be the sort of effects on recruitment uh, and, so, and also the kind of general wherewithal and the, and, the, and the morale of the armed response units if these two guys get found guilty of this? I wouldn't like to say, but I, I, I think it will have a detrimental effect on the behaviour of my armed colleagues and the way they respond too serious incidents and that that is terrible I, I don't like talking like that as a police officer because we're, we're here to protect you we're here to look after you we're here to run the walls here and that's what i do and that's what i have running through my veins and yeah. all my other colleagues yes exactly right well listen ken i wish them both luck if you see them for me i wish them Cheers, luck mate. on behalf of all the people listening to this show as well because we do not want to see this happening and we do not think they deserve it thanks very much indeed ken marsh uh, from the metropolitan police Fed.
Federation are absolutely steaming mad, and quite rightly so, uh, because this is what uh, a spokesman for the Independent Office for Police Conduct said. On Friday, February the 28th, we served notices of investigation for dangerous driving and gross misconduct on the officer driving the vehicle involved in the collision and on the driver of a marked police vehicle, which was in close proximity to the unmarked vehicle. A criminal investigation does not mean that criminal charges will necessarily follow. Oh, well, that's nice. So now they may be found guilty of some kind of a crime. Misconduct notices do not imply guilt. Such notices are not judgmental in any way. Well, let me tell you something, mate. They are very judgmental because what you're basically telling us uh, is that a guy who's driving at high speed to a terrorist attack which is ongoing in order to save some people's lives, in order that these people wouldn't be stabbed by some crazed maniac who was let out of jail too early, even though the police said he was dangerous, well, I think he should be driving probably quite fast and he probably should be driving in a risky manner. But that's why he's trained to do that and occasionally things go wrong. Occasionally, uh, you're going to have the odd collision. It doesn't mean that you should take these guys down and start charging them with crimes and start insinuating that they might lose their jobs. It's an absolute and utter disgrace. And I want to hear from you on this, please. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, don't forget, we're live streaming on YouTube as well. You can watch us as well as listening to us here on Talk Radio. We'll come back with your calls next. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Lots more for us to do throughout the course of the day. Coming up at around about half past ten, we expect to hear from Boris Johnson uh, at Downing Street. He's going to be giving us his four-point plan. There's an awful lot of talk and back-talk going on around the coronavirus outbreak uh, about what Britain is about to do, what Britain may be prepared to do, uh, what shops are prepared to do, what um, organisations are prepared to do. There's an awful lot of traffic traffic uh, down in, in terms of airport flights and all of that. We'll be talking to Simon Calder later on in the show about that as well. Uh, but let's go to the phones now and talk about this police situation, which is quite frankly ludicrous. I've just spoken uh, to Ken Marsh, who's the chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation. He is absolutely hopping mad, quite rightly, that two very, very brave individuals, two anti-terror police, are now being investigated uh, for gross misconduct, which could lead to them losing their jobs. Simon is in Orpington. Hello, Simon. Mike, good morning. Good morning. And uh, we're going to have to have a ding-dong this morning, I'm afraid. Yeah, go on. Look, I, I, I think you're wrong. I think if there's been an accident, uh, it has to be investigated. That's the procedures that the police have in place. Yeah, there's no, ar there's no argument there's, about that, though. There's yeah. no argument about the investigation. Well, I understand that. But if they feel there's reason to take it further, then again, they have to take it further. Now, Mike, what you've got here is uh, two members of the, or a couple of members of the public who were injured by the police car. Now, if that was your family member who was injured and maybe there was evidence or suspicion that the police were tweeting or texting or something like that and not paying attention, surely you would want, at least want that investigated so you knew. Well, the fact is, they can do an investigation, uh, they can get these people in front of a panel of experts, if that's what they wish to do, but what they don't have to do is charge them with gross misconduct. It's all very well saying, you know, this does not in any way reflect on their guilt. But it's a bit like saying, if I charge you uh, with some kind of, uh, you know, assault, even though you weren't guilty of it, um, then that's not going to have any effect on your reputation in, no. in, in the wider world. As police officers, they are in dangerous situations. They're not in ordinary jobs. They're not, you know, driving instructors. If they happen to have an incident while they're driving at high speed towards a terrorist attack because they're trying to save lives, they should be treated slightly differently than the way you and I are treated, shouldn't they? Look, perhaps, but perhaps, um, if perhaps. you're saying, well, hang on, hang on, if you're saying um, that there was evidence for gross misconduct, but then you're saying you think they should overlook that, well, why should they overlook it? Well, who's it? saying the there is evidence, time? though? Yeah, but who's Mike, saying that? Well, 
Well, that's what the, the investigation will find out. Well, surely like, you then do you the investigation. Well, hang on, don't hang you on do the, hang, no, hang on, don't you do the investigation and then decide whether to charge them with misconduct? Well, if they've got to a place of actually making the charge, then obviously they feel there's reason to do, to put the charge in place. They wouldn't do it just for the sake of it. Are you sure? But we have to understand. Yeah, but we need to know that when police are going to any form of incidents, they are travelling there in the safest manner possible. I understand. I mean, you said their job is to take risks. No, it's not. Yes, it is. The job. I'm no, sorry. Right, no. Job. Oh, how would hang you on, like wait. it, right? If you, were, if you, back. hang on, wait a second. Wait, no, just wait one All second, right. Simon. If you're getting stabbed on London Bridge. You don't care if the guy's stopping for a red light to save you, do you? Well, they, the police, the, the rules of the police is they never know what they're attending when they're going there exactly. And by the time they get there, the, the position has changed anyway. So therefore, the enemy to a police going on the way to the instrument is red mist. And that's when the danger kicks in. That's rubbish. That's what You're they're talking absolute no. rubbish, Simon. I'm sorry. Absolute cobblers. But I'd like to talk to you some more about it, but I've got to run. So call me back and we'll talk later. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Don't forget we are live streaming on YouTube now as well as uh, on Facebook and on Twitter so you can watch us as well as listening to us. Uh, we've got lots coming up uh, in the next hour. We've got to be uh, talking to Simon Calder who is of course our travel guru from the Independent and he's going to be telling us precisely what is going on out there uh, in the big wide world because an awful lot of airlines are cancelling flights. A lot of airlines are, are stopping flying to certain destinations and it's going to be only a matter of time I would have thought before some of them start to really really feel the pinch you can uh, and if you're travelling anywhere, you want to listen to it because, uh, of course, what British Airways have suggested they're going to do uh, is they're going to allow people to change the dates of their flights if, in fact, um, they need to go some other time because they can't go at the moment. But what I'm saying is I'm not sure people want to book flights at the moment because it's not very clear what the state of the world is going to be uh, in the coming weeks and months. I'm not suggesting there's any reason to be alarmed. It's just that, you know, the measures that might be taken by certain countries or by certain governments, including our own, might make it difficult for people to travel. One of the other side effects, of course, of uh, the coronavirus outbreak is that supermarkets are now hit by panic buying. Tesco's have said that, uh, you know, if there is a major outbreak in this country, there might be empty shelves and food riots. Ocado has emailed customers to warn them that it's running out of home delivery slots due to exceptionally high demand. What is going on out there? We thought rather than talking to some shopping executives, we'd talk to somebody who could tell us about the psychology of all of this. And Honey Lancaster James joins us now. Honey, very good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. You're not too panic-stricken then to come into work today? Well, I'm not, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm not one for panicking, generally speaking. I'm also not one for hoarding stuff. I've never really been someone that does that, you know. I always mm. assume that, uh, you know, it's never going to be as bad as, as people say it's going to be. But what is this kind of obsession that people seem to have in this country with, with hoarding? I mean, if somebody said to you, uh, or somebody announced on the news there's going to be a, a fuel mm. shortage, the next thing, you mm. go out and everybody's queuing up for petrol. Yes, that's right. I mean, first of all, just to say, this is a normal behaviour. Hoarding behaviour, especially at times of stress and insecurity, is a very normal and adaptive response. Right. If you think about, you know, primitive man, <laughs> um, you know, it would have made sense if you think that there might be an impending uh, shortage or difficulty for you getting supplies. It makes absolutely adaptive sense to want to hoard. The question really is whether that is actually warranted. And sometimes what we have is a situation where
where some of our old kind of fear responses, if you like, are left over from times when we perhaps did need to listen to them. And now they sort of, in, they, we, they kind of impact upon us, even perhaps when it's not necessary. Right. So one of the things, you know, we often talk about is how the body and the brain responds to threat in the same way as if a lion's coming towards you, your sort of limbic system, your kind of primitive brain, if you like, responds as if you're under threat. And even if it's perhaps just an impending exam mm. or something else. And I think it's similar when it comes to these kind of panics. Um, some people would say that they're just taking precautions about not necessarily worrying that they're not going to be able to leave the house, but worrying that there might be a shortage because other people are panic buying. And of course, what happens is it becomes a bit of a bandwagon. We yes. call it the bandwagon effect. You only need to see one other person uh, queuing up and trying to get things. And that makes you think, well, hang on, if everybody does that, then there will be a shortage. Yes. So I want to get in there. And of course, it creates this snowball effect. Well, that's um, kind of how so the fuel, that's how happen. the fuel shortages, shortage, shortages happen, isn't it? Because people yes. go and buy petrol and then suddenly there isn't any. <laughs> that's right. It's the fear of the shortage right. that actually then creates the shortage, if you like. Right. Um, so, so that is a bit of a problem. Um, I mean, I think this whole thing with the coronavirus, uh, ultimately, you know, it is right that we're getting the, the appropriate sort of health advice and things that we need to do. And it is all about washing your hands and observing sensible things like coughing and sneezing into a tissue and then discarding the tissue, you know, from a medical point of view. But one of the things that interests me as a psychologist is that we're also seeing the sort of facts and figures, the scientific evidence that suggests that this is actually much less threatening than the sort of the more common strains of flu mm. um, that we have to deal with anyway as a... As a as well, a, this is it. I mean, I've, I've been saying to people, honey, since this really became a big story, I suppose, about a week or two ago, it's the effect mm. of the virus more than the virus itself which is causing the mm. problem, really. Mm. I mean, obviously, I'm not a doctor and I'm not, you know, no, therefore medically qualified, but, I mean, it is a lot when you see, I think, constant sort of news coverage of people walking around in masks and constant news coverage about things like the cruise liner that was under lockdown and now the flights and things like that. Obviously, that makes people think, well, hang on, this must be a real threat. This must be a lot more dangerous than normal flu because otherwise people wouldn't be shutting things down. But actually, what happens is it can be a bit of a domino effect. And there might be an issue in one place, you know, perhaps in China or Japan or whatever, and certain things start to be locked down to cope with it there. And that then sort of has this global effect because of the way that news spreads globally. Mm. And so it can magnify the sense of threat. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be taking precautions to just wash hands and do all the normal things we should do anyway if, we're, if we've got germs or we're, we're coughing and spluttering. We should be doing that, of course. But I think we do need to be careful not to panic and not to confuse sort of news coverage with being an indication of actual level of threat. Because mm. by my understanding, and again, again, being very careful to point out that I'm not a doctor, the, the, the evidence that I've read suggests that actually this is less threatening than, than flu, ordinary flu. And we don't go around sort of stopping flights and closing things down and stockpiling from the supermarket every winter because flu comes no, back around. No, we don't. But I suppose part of the problem here is that this is a sort of an unknown virus in the sense that it's spreading... Uh, uh, in a way that they know that flu doesn't spread. I mean, because flu mm, is yeah. a, is something which 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 only really is dangerous to a relatively small number of people, as is this. But I think mm, the trouble is mm. they still don't really know 
enough. And I think that is that that's that's where there's a problem because you know potentially if they allow it to go, I mean, I, I sort of have two points of view here. If they were sure that it's not that dangerous. They could probably just say to people, look, it's not really going to be a problem for most people, um, so we're going to just try and contain it and do our best, but if loads of people get it, mm. so be it. But they can't really say that, can they? Because that sounds a little bit well, sort of... It sounds a little mm. bit cavalier. Yes, but of course, and also, one of the problems is that once this has been sort of publicised on the international stage as it has, then it takes, you know one person getting very very sick or you know one person tragically dying and that then makes the news now because it's a story about coronavirus whereas very sadly the honest truth is that a number of people die each year from the flu and from other infectious diseases and that doesn't make the news because if you like that's not on the back of that news story so i think that's one of the difficulties we have with the way we consume media nowadays mm. that yes. once a, once something has been made into a story then all, we seek to sort of confirm that story and, and and further that story by looking for evidence that goes along with that story and unfortunately we then sort of ignore all the things that that are counter from that so i think that's a danger here it's a danger in the way that we have such rapid sharing of news around the globe that something that could be relatively well contained or relatively well managed in one area then creates a sort of international panic. Yes. And do you think there's a sort of a human comfort blanket, I suppose you might say, if, if there is a house full of stuff, you know, like if you have hoarded loads of cans of beans and you have hoarded mm, you know, loads mm. of wet wipes and you've hoarded loads of hand gel, which I'm told, mm. by the way, doesn't even work on coronavirus unless it's 60% mm. alcohol so if you've bought a load of that, you can't really, it's not really going to do you any good yeah. but people feel, I suppose, safer mm. if they've got a lo- big, big cupboard full of stuff Yes, well I think there's two things there, I think one is around you know, there are some people who will feel more safe and more secure if they have stockpiled for almost every eventuality. You know, there are some people who like to keep a back cupboard full of tins of whatever just in case anything happens, yeah. you know, flooding or anything right. else or the car breaks down or whatever. Um, so I think there are some people who have that kind of personality, if you like, where they pre- they prefer to be prepared for all eventualities. And I think it would undoubtedly make them feel more safe and secure to have that in place. And then I think there's another sort of psychological principle at play as well, which is around the element of control. And when, you know, when we feel insecure and when we feel a bit uncertain about outcomes, one of the things that can make us feel better is feeling like we can do something, that we are empowered that we have a level of control so even the sort of hand sanitizer thing that you mentioned you know even if it isn't uh, particularly effective in some cases if you've bought that sort of cheap stuff or you've got those kind of wet wipes or something it can make you feel better thinking well there is something I can do and and it's just the feeling of control the feeling of empowerment the feeling of being able to do something that actually reduces your anxiety mm. rather than the actual thing itself, if that makes sense. Yes. So now the sixty-four thousand dollar question: Are you have you stockpiled anything, honey? <laughs> I haven't. 
hasn't yet, but now you're mentioning it. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, if, funnily enough, I just got asked, actually, if I, I do some public speaking and I, I do some speaking on cruise ships sometimes. And I just got asked if I wanted to go on this cruise and do some talks. You know, the first thing that went through my head was, oh, but what about the virus? Yeah. I suppose I was thinking more about things like, you know, is it going to um, be an issue where we won't be able to pull into a particular port and so we'll be on board longer? But actually, you know, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm in my middle age. I'm relatively fit and healthy and well. And if I did get it, the, 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 all the evidence suggests that I would be absolutely fine. I mean, I do worry a little bit about my, um, my elderly father who, who texted me yesterday and said that he had, you know, cold, a heavy cold symptoms and I said oh dad you know do you think you should vote of course you know I'm human just like everybody else we're going to worry about these things but we have to look at the facts and you know perhaps take some reassurance from that that actually this was a big news story and as a result it's become a global news story but it doesn't mean that you're under any more threat than you would be from the normal strains of flu and in fact I think the death rates for flu are much much higher yes I think they are try not to panic you know try not to panic Absolutely right. Well, very wise words, honey. Thank you very much indeed. Honey Lancaster James there uh, on the psychology of hoarding. If you've been hoarding stuff, I'd love to know what it is that you're hoarding and why, because there's no need for it. I mean, despite the fact that Lidl say uh, they are experiencing a significant increase in demand for durable products and disinfectants, it has now limited sales of hand sanitizer to two per customer. So effectively, they're rationing hand sanitizer because people are getting carried away thinking they have to buy it. And by the way, apparently, if it's not 60% alcohol, it doesn't work anyway on coronavirus. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Well, even as we speak, I've just received an email in which it says, great news, we've released thousands of extra seats from £29. Uh, and that's Eurostar. Uh, also 35 quid to Amsterdam. Spring seats, uh, they're saying, because basically I don't think anyone's going anywhere. Let's talk to Simon Calder, our very favourite travel editor and travel guru. Simon, a very good afternoon to you. Mike, um, so interesting to hear that you're, you say that I'm going to tell you exactly what's happening in the airline business. <laughs> Crikey, if only. Well, um, I mean, I can tell you if you want to go to lovely Norway tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow, um, then uh, it's going to cost you um, just over £44. Really? Uh, yep, that's flying out of Stansted. Um, actually going to real Oslo on Ryanair, which is a change because they've got two other places they pretend are Oslo. Oh, yeah. um, so £44. Um, obviously, uh, that's about the price of a beer in the Norwegian <laughs> capital, but um, uh, st- still nice to, to, to get away. And um, it just shows you what sort of uh, ridiculous state the airline business is in. And I got the same email from uh, Eurostar, mm. yep. they are um, uh, suddenly selling fares, uh, lots and lots and lots of seats at um, uh, prices way below I mean, could what this, they would Could this do. also be the result of us leaving the European Union and therefore there's no great cavalcade of, uh, uh, of, of bureaucrats going backwards and forwards to Brussels? Oh, oh yes, there's an awful lot of that and there will be, it's not so much this year because we're still pretending we're in the European Union and of course there's quite a lot of negotiators. Sure, but there's, but there's nobody in the, in, in the European Parliament anymore so that must be saving quite a few oh, journeys obviously. oh sure yes absolutely um so uh it was um you know it, it, it it's a difficult times for uh eurostar and for any other travel business um i think we're back now to where we were in 2001 in the dark days after the 9-11 attack some people have said it's like the uh, uh economic um 
collapse yes. uh, a decade ago. I think it's worse than that. Well, I think in terms of the travel business it is, yes. because what we've got is a lot of people uh, who just don't know what to do. They're not sure where to go. Not because anything's necessarily a problem. It's just that, you know, I, I was going to book a flight to, to, to New York to go and see my mother in April, yeah. but I decided not to, because I thought, yeah. I don't know for sure at the moment what the situation in April is going to be like. And then uh, sure enough, the next day, British Airways cancels a lot of flights to New York. Yeah, um, and they're not doing that, of course, for health reasons. It's purely because they think that they're all going to be empty. Yes. And, and what? So, so there's two two cases here. The first one is I've booked, and therefore, if I don't go, I'll lose some or all of my money. You should most certainly go. Um, you know, if, if the government will tell you if it's to an area which is regarded as too dangerous um, in terms of the coronavirus, and those are mainland China. The two regions of South Korea I've never heard of and mm. certainly wouldn't be going to. And 11, no doubt, delightful towns in northern Italy, yes. none of which is on the tourism trail. So no, and Iran, uh, of course, where not a lot of people yeah. want to go anyway. Um, so, so there's those uh, those locations, but um, I think the worry uh, though is Simon, and I think it's it's not about so much people who are obviously not going to be going to those types of places anyway. The worry is that if you book a flight now to go somewhere in April or May, um, it may well be by April and yeah. May one of those destinations might be on that list. Oh sure, and look, I I'm. I would predict that your trip to New York will go ahead absolutely normally, but I don't know for sure. And so, therefore, if you're looking at future bookings, really any time at all, um, I would just hold off just until wait, yeah. a, a little bit. Well, we had a look this morning on the BA website, and you can fly to New York return at yeah. the moment, today, for about 270 quid. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great time to be a traveller. And the prices will go up. Um, there, there will be a stage, I again predict, at which we will say uh, collectively, uh, actually, we're kind of getting used to this now. Um, we want a bit of sun, we want a bit of excitement, and we'll, we'll start travelling again. Yes. Um, but otherwise, just just do it on a sort of short-term mm. Book, book in advance. I mean, in, in, I know that you haven't got a crystal ball and I know that you probably have not got a sort of insider knowledge of the finances of any of these companies, but it can't be doing them any good in terms of running an airline uh, where you're expected. I know the margins are not very big anymore these days, you know, and so no, if you're having to cancel flights because there's just not the traffic... Then their revenues are going to be down, and I suppose the question is, how long can they afford for that to be the case? Well, lots of the the big airlines serving the UK, um, there is exactly no problem with them. I mean, they can, they could last for I was going to say years, right. certainly months without uh, without any problems. So that that's uh, EasyJet, Ryanair, Jet2, and uh, British Airways. They are all in very very good financial shape mm. uh, yeah, they, they will be damaged by this of course but um, it's the, the smaller players who well just yesterday Ryanair said oh by the way we're going to see some EU airlines collapse in the next few weeks mm. um, and I suspect they will be uh, correct because um, at the, you know, no airline was having a great time which is why we saw for example Thomas Cook collapse um, right. last September and although things have been sort of getting better partly because Thomas Cook collapsed there's still not huge profits being made and if you're a small airline uh, cash is king as they say and there's no cash coming in and there's lots of it going out so miserable time I'm afraid yes and I mean the other thing of course is one of the things I suppose one of the surprising things for me anyway was when we discovered quite how much Chinese tourism was going on around the world oh yeah and of course one of the reasons why a lot of this spread as quickly as it did was because there were so many people from China uh, in Europe and it turns out now that that's not really the case so that will also be damaging I suppose our own economies 
uh, here in this part of the world. Yeah, and the whole thing about uh, big Chinese tour groups is they tend to travel for very good reasons of cost um, off season, and therefore you will, um, uh, you know, generally at this time of year in um, the south coast on the Scottish Highlands in um, uh, York, in Edinburgh, in Stratford-on-Avon, there would normally be big Chinese groups who are filling up beds which would otherwise be empty. And guess what? They're not there, so those beds are empty. Mm. And yeah, they weren't they, they weren't being sold at huge profits, but it was still you know keeping people busy. Um, they were obviously shopping and so on. So it's a real, real shame that that has. Um, uh, that that's happened and the british tourism industry will get a boost from people staying at home um and i think for example scotland will do really well out of english people thinking well i don't want to trust uh, take the chance of going abroad um so let's go to scotland instead but it remains to be seen how much of that is offset by the people who aren't coming particularly from north america mm. if they get the idea oh britain's dangerous not going there or europe's dangerous then they have quite some previous in um, in just saying well, I, was gonna, I was going to say the Americans are quite skittish about stuff like this aren't they uh, they they have historically been. I mean, they would say, I guess, that uh, we got so many wonderful things with our own country. Why would we fly long distance um, and and take a few risks when uh, when we don't need to? So uh, it's um, it's a dodgy time for for all tourism operators. And I, th- th- would you believe I'm actually on a sort of one person moral crusade, which um, may surprise you. That's not which, like you, Simon. Which is just keep travelling. Um, you know, tens of millions of jobs around the world depend on it and if we allow ourselves uh, if we talk ourselves into just you know staying in yes well we're, we're going to be in a right well like, yeah no i agree i mean i i'm sort of constantly now my refrain is basically that we have to be very careful that the effect of what we think is going to happen shouldn't be worse than what is actually going to happen yes you know in terms of the actual virus itself you know the prime minister i think gave a very sort of decent press conference this morning talking about how prepared we all are and how people shouldn't really worry about it but unfortunately you know human nature being what it is we're seeing people emptying supermarket shelves of mm. hand gel and you know all sorts of disinfectants and all sorts of things that they think they get, they are going to need in in the case of a zombie apocalypse and <laughs> i think people just like to think of everything going horribly wrong you know brexit's happened and it didn't go horribly wrong now we've got the coronavirus to worry about I, well, it's a kind of human condition it seems to me uh there's a bit of that although i've never ever seen anything which has caused so much upset anxiety stress turning um anticipation into real apprehension among travellers who are booked to go and i'm doing all i can to say look this is actually a great time to be a traveller but i'm not sure that everybody believes me and uh, it, it's it's one of those things where i think this has been partly fueled by social media yes. lots and lots of rumors going round. Um, once they take hold, once you get the idea mm. that the whole world is scary, um, the I can say till I'm blue in the face. The fact <laughs> is, actually, everybody, I've done the sums. You can see my working, if you like. It has never been a safer time for British people to be holidaymakers abroad, no. which is completely true. Mm. But whether anybody believes that is a different matter. Well, I mean, you know, there are people now putting signs up in buildings saying if you've been to any of these countries, you can't come in. I've not seen those, but how exciting. Well, it can be. Yeah. I mean, you might want to be careful about... Well, I mean, most of them are in sort of parts of Southeast Asia and yeah. obviously China and South Korea and Northern uh, Italy and all of that. But certainly people are beginning to take 
precautions is what well, I'm saying. I, well, they would call them precautions, The um, and I'm going entirely on what the World Health Organization and what the British government say, and they basically say that travel bans, things like this, are not, uh, not actually doing um, any good. The main thing is to contain this horrible virus is just for everybody to be better at um, cleanliness. Their hands. Yeah, yes. but just, just practice good good traveller hygiene. I and agree. One but, good I refuse, thing out of this. but I refuse to sing Happy Birthday twice. I'm not doing uh, that. You, you can... You can, uh, I mean, re- can I sing something else? Uh, we've got to save the Queen, apparently, first verse. <laughs> Uh, that, that's enough. Right, that'll do. I'd rather yeah. sing that. Now, uh, let me ask you about the, the story on the front of the Times today yeah. as well, which is about the uh, fact that hotel rooms can actually cost more when you book them on these travel sites that claim to be sort of, you know, best at comparing them. Yes, and look, guess what? Um, it's not exactly rocket science. So, uh, typically, a lot of people will book uh, hotels in the following way. They may go onto a price comparison website, yeah. such as uh, Trivago. Um, they may then be routed to a hotel site, such as Booking.com yes. or Hotels.com. Mm. And then they will book this property on the grounds that, hey, look, um, they, they, it's it's the best price. Um, and that's fine. And if you want to do that, of course, that's entirely your, your choice. But just remember that 18% roughly of the value of the transaction is leaving um, the, the, you, know, you and the uh, proprietor of the hotel. So on a £100 room, £18 of that is just going mm. to um, uh, well some investors somewhere. Right. And so you can do that. Um, or you can think, as I do, oh, I'm just going to have a look on Trivago, see what uh, deals there are around for, well, in fact, lovely Luxembourg that's mm. where I spent the weekend because they just brought in nice. free public transport everywhere great food which was there. great oh fantastic food um, and fantastic that you can step on any train bus or plane mm. uh, no not plane no 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 uh, train bus or tram and not spend anything anywhere in the country all free from from uh, Saturday they just mind you it's a tax it. haven isn't it um, so it's got uh, lots of companies registered there. They they have got a lively financial sector, <laughs> I think is the uh, term you're looking yes. for. for. Um, so anyway, I just have a look, get an idea of prices, find one or two properties which look interesting, and I will get onto their website. Or indeed, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Mike, picking up the phone and talking to them. Well, do you know, I have been known to do that because I did remember a time before we had the internet and actually that was what you had to do all the time. Yes. Um, but I was always under the impression as well that hotels are sort of blocked sold a lot of their rooms to various uh, kind of discount no, organisers. No, no. Do they not do that anymore? Um, uh, right. Uh, that they... Um uh, that they might like to create that impression, and ah. of course you get lots of lots of urgent things saying there's only three rooms left on this, or 18 people have booked in, yeah. the, in the past half hour. Um, I would take those with a pinch of salt. You say that's uh, a bit of a con, then? Well, I would just say that they're sending out messages which are perhaps extravagant in their claims. Yes. And so always contact the hotel direct um, because apart from anything else, very often they'll give you a yeah a little five percent discount or something, which you yes. quite often have to sign up for their tedious for their um, loyalty mm. scheme to get but it's worth it right. and then they'll give you extras you know maybe free internet although that's pretty common everywhere now right. uh, maybe a free breakfast still dodgy in America sometimes the internet yeah. and Mexico oh. funny enough when I was there they, they, they were like they would, you, you could buy internet access uh, in this hotel that I was in, in in Cancun one time but you could only get it on two devices yes which um, I thought was a bit cheap cheesy uh, 
Yeah, it, 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 well, you know. uh, and they, would you believe, as from today, four hotels in Las Vegas have just raised their resort fee. If anybody doesn't know what these pernicious things are, in order to disguise how much hotels cost, um, they will add a resort fee. And in uh, four properties in Las Vegas, you're actually going to be paying more for this extra charge, which covers things like, they say, internet and um, access to the health club and local oh, yeah. phone calls. Yes. Um, and uh, they've just put those prices up because because of the coronavirus mm. so it's uh, it, it's, it's any um, excuse yeah exactly um but but no uh, just talk direct to hotels they will be delighted that you are helping them save 18 percent of the the booking fee um and you'll get you'll get a better deal i very much hope if you don't then let me know because you jolly well should absolutely right well listen simon as ever a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much indeed simon calder there uh, with lots of advice about why you should continue to travel and not why you should not not because I mean the problem is of course uh, if the place you want to go to is not on any list of difficult countries as far as the coronavirus is concerned there's not really any reason why you shouldn't go but people are kind of concerned because they're not sure if that's going to change and they're not sure if travel in and out of this country is going to change and that is part of the problem it's the unknown uh, that people fear Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio Welcome back to Talk Radio and the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. One of the things we do here now uh, is we do Talk Radio TV I'm going to be filming Plank of the Week coming up uh, later on this afternoon uh, in the company of Andre Walker and Madeline Grant from the Daily Telegraph uh, Yesterday we did what we always do on a Monday we did the off-air uh, show where I interview uh, a leading personality from the world of politics or from the world of academia or sometimes from the worlds uh, of, of both put together. Yesterday we spoke to Ruth Lee, uh, who's an economist, has always been a Brexiteer, has always wanted to leave the European Union, was one of the few lone voices uh, on that subject, but she's also quite knowledgeable on the subject of climate change. Have a listen to this. But when it comes to global carbon emissions, we are 1%. Yes. 1%. China is knocking on for 30 mm. Will China actually cut back on its carbon emissions because we decarbonise? No. Of course not. Well, it's like there are people now who genuinely walk around going, oh, it's OK, I've planted some trees. And you go, well, so? So? What, how, what difference does that make? I mean, my favourite story is about Chris Martin, uh, the Coldplay singer, uh, who decided yes. to offset their last tour by putting 40,000 trees in a very hot part of southern India. Uh, half of them burnt down <laughs> uh, and the other half died because there wasn't enough water to keep them going. And you go, well, that's really not helping at all, is it? You can get the whole of that off-air conversation on YouTube uh, just by typing Talk Radio. By the way, uh, you can also watch this particular show every single day. Uh, we live stream it on YouTube, we live stream it on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just go to the YouTube channel, like it, subscribe to it, and then every time we do anything, uh, you will get an alert for something else that you can watch. And more and more people are joining the channel, more and more people are looking forward to it every single week. So, uh, we'll do more of that uh, as the uh, week goes on. And as I say, look out for Plank of the Week uh, later on this evening. Right now, though, we're going to talk to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South. We spoke to Matt some weeks ago when he was a new boy, as it were, uh, in Parliament. He was one of those Tory MPs elected from the northeast of England, uh, and he'd come to London really not knowing what to expect. But we're going to talk to him now about uh, how MPs are apparently more likely to booze than the rest of us. Matt, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, the last time you were here, you were telling us that you were quite shocked at the price of beer in London. So uh, I don't know whether you've, uh, you've got more used to that. But I suppose uh, what I can say is that I, MPs that I know now probably drink a lot less than they used to um, about 20 years ago. 
I think I think that might be the case. They're obviously having a very good time that all that time ago. Um, I think I think this issue about people drinking. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, to hear people uh, so so worried about the well-being of MPs all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but I think I mean alcoholism and mental health issues. They're they're very serious issues. There's lots of consequences. A big deal. Um, but I think most MPs are responsible enough to look after themselves, I would hope. Yes, uh, you would actually, think. But one of the things, all... uh, funny enough, I was down there just during half-term. I took my kids uh, around the uh, parliament and, and a friend of mine was, was kind enough to show me around. Um, and uh, what I didn't realise was that an awful lot of the bars have actually been shut down. Because there used to be, I think, about 18 or 19 bars in the Palace of Westminster, and I think they've reduced it down to by, by half. I'm not sure of that. There's still plenty of places to find a drink, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> I think I think one of the things with this debate is we we end up we oversimplify the issue we sort of demonise beer and pubs. Actually, there are you know sensible, moderate, sociable drinking uh, is is good for people's mental health. Yeah. it's good for tackling isolation. Uh, it's 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 got benefits to the economy, uh, the the industry. You know, like we oversimplify it. We talk about pubs and beer being a bad thing. Actually, they're a really good thing in villages throughout the country and places like this. The big decisions that are made here aren't made because someone stands up in the chamber and shouts about mm. them. They're made by discussions that go on around coffee tables or, or perhaps with a painting. Well, sometimes in the bar. Yeah, I was slightly concerned to find out that the press bar had shut down and that the guy who used to run it, who everybody knew terribly well, because when I was a newspaper executive, I used to pop down there sometimes on a, say, Tuesday or Wednesday night, and as long yeah. as there was a, a, a parliament that was in session, the bar was always open. And apparently the press bar's gone. It was one, it was one of the ones sort of up at the top of one of the towers. Um, and so I don't know how many of the bars you've visited so far on your on your I mean, travels. The problem with that is they might have shut this press bar. It means you lot get in with us. That's the problem. Well, that is a problem, and that means you can't <laughs> say anything to each other without getting found out. I suppose. But, that, I mean, might, that might help moderate the drinking. Though, yeah, might. it might well do. <laughs> what's the what's the what's the going rate now for a pint of beer in, in Parliament? You know, that's a good question. It's like one of those uh, bottle of milk questions. Yeah, it's no. a bit, I think it's. A, I think the last time I bought a pint in there, which was quite a few years ago, it was a, a quid or so cheaper than it would be on the outside. You bought an individual pint. Did you not buy them round, mate? Well, I did. Yeah, but I'm just trying. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to help you along with your lack of right. knowledge. I'm just trying to be nice here because you know I don't want you to get caught out in a bad way. But yeah, no, it was. It was. I think if a pint was four quid outside, it was three quid in there or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not because sure. They're keeping it in line with us, nods. I think that's. Well, that's exactly right. So how how are you settling in anyway? Have you have you found your um, way around the, the, most of it now? I'm loving it. I think I found all the bars. Uh, I'm absolutely loving it. We've, we've been banging some questions in today. There's a maiden speech on the horizon. Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely loving it. Yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, um, I was listening to somebody talk the other day saying that uh, there's a certain news organisation which is a bit unhappy at the moment because they hired a load of extra people to do more politics. Uh, and they're finding that they haven't got anything to cover because it's so boring, because there's nobody fighting anymore, because you guys have got such a big majority that there's literally nothing going on. You mean we're busy getting things done? Well, there is that. I mean, yeah. you, could, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what's your, what's, your, what's your sort of, you know, take on the, uh, on the Northern Powerhouse scenario? Because when you were in here, you were saying you've got to make sure that you do deliver for the people that got you into, uh, into Parliament. So uh, how's, that, how's that coming along? I'm quite happy. We've got a very intelligent bloke at uh, number 11 now, and I think he's going to do a very good job for us. Yeah. And, and he represents a northern constituency, which can only be very good news. He's a big fan of Yorkshire tea. He is. He is. Um, I, <laughs> that's gone down very well, hasn't it? It has, I, I, We've yeah. got Tetley tea in my constituency. I don't know if I'll demonise them by mentioning them. <laughs> um, but Tetley tea, mm, I don't know. What's, what's, your, what's your brew of choice, Mike? Um, do you know what? I don't know. I mean, I'll just drink any, any old tea. I don't really mind. Oh, right, not fussy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a tea snob. I do quite <laughs> like the old Earl Grey, I have to say.
Yeah. Mm. So what's on the agenda for the rest of this week? Because we just had Boris Johnson on the coronavirus. Obviously, that's the thing that's kind of occupying everybody's mind at the moment because nobody really knows where it's all going to go. Um, but what's your, what's your sort of rest of your week looking like? Um, I'm, I'm heading back to the constituency on Thursday yeah. and I've got loads of stuff to do. I'm going to meet the chief constable. I'm going to do, we've got all sorts of issues. Good. Of, of things to tackle. And in fact, the biggest thing today, uh, the biggest news on the horizon, I don't, I don't know whether it's been released yet, but we're, we're connecting up a thousand more houses to super fast broadband. Oh, brilliant. That this week. In my constituency, a thousand more people, a thousand more kids able to study at home with super fast broadband, a thousand more people able to set up a business in the constituency. Great stuff. So great. So tell us the constituency. You might as well take the credit for it. Stockton South. Stockton right. South. We've got, we've got, we do, we're solving rural problems. We're, we're hooking people up with broadband. We've got another amazing thing. One of the problems in, in rural areas is about buses. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that bus companies do not want to run empty buses through villages because uh, it costs a bit of cash yeah. and it's no use to anybody if the bus is empty. We've got this innovative approach in Teesside where we've got these fantastic... It's T-Flex. It's like the Uber bus. Oh, yeah. It's an Uber bus. You go on, you get your app, or you ring up and you say, you know, Mrs. Jones wants the, uh, wants the bus and wants to go to the doctor's at 2 o'clock this afternoon. We'll hook it all in. This bus system, then the buses run on demand. That's so a good idea. The village. Yeah, innovative. We'll see if it works. It will work. It will work. I'm positive. Yeah. And, uh, upbeat about it. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's about using technology to help the community, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, you can't sounds... keep doing what you always did. If it didn't work before, it's not going to work now. So no. Think you outside the box. You tell that to the Labour Party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Matt, thanks very much indeed. Matt Vickers there. Uh, what a great guy. Conservative MP for Stockton South, already making a difference. There you are. If you live in Stockton South, you're getting faster broadband, you're getting a, a sort of DIY bus service, custom made, uh, to get you around and about. I think uh, those are the kind of MPs we need, and I'm a great supporter of the new breed uh, of young MP which is go who, who have won their seats in the north of England, unexpectedly, you'd have to say, uh, but much uh, built on the back of Boris's Brexit plan. And uh, it can only be a good thing. It can only be uh, encouraging. Not only uh, that people like Matt are doing things for his local community and doing things for his constituency, but he's willing to come on uh, this radio station and talk about it as well. So hats off to Matt. Uh, and uh, no wonder uh, the bars are brewing uh, lots and lots of beer down in uh, Westminster. And I'm sure there'll be lots of reasons to celebrate. Uh, we shall see. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.